Hey, listeners, welcome to another episode of the WTF podcast with your host, Michelle McKenzie, where we spark conversations that demystify entrepreneurship and the fog around funding. Before we get into the conversation with today's guest, I would like to let you know that I am starting a community for you to have live conversations with guests that have appeared on the podcast. Have you ever listened to an episode and felt like you wanted more? or felt there was a question that I didn't ask that you wanted to know more about, you get to ask guest questions about things that you want to learn more about. Earlier this year, I co-created a grant writing course based on my observations from 10 years experience working at a foundation, selecting and awarding grants. And during that time, I noted some key mistakes that grant applicants make repeatedly. This course helps business and social entrepreneurs like you learn key grant writing skills to help you move from rejection to acceptance by increasing your chances of winning grants to launch or grow your business. When you join my community, you get the following. Two months free access from the time you sign up to my grant writing course, a $220 value. This course includes six individual modules that will walk you through grant writing, grant review, and the post-award process. You also get Notice of grant funding opportunities to apply before grant deadlines close, discount access on new courses when they're launched, and the opportunity to beta test courses before they're launched. You also get access to master classes where lots of knowledge gems will be dropped. If there are other topics that you want to learn about, let me know. But to be a part of all of this, you've got to join my community. So make sure you join by clicking the link in the show notes. So make sure you check out the show notes. Now that that's out of the way, let's turn it over to our guests for today's episode. Kiko Mio, how about you go ahead, Kiko, and introduce yourself to our audience? Yeah, sure. Thank you for that um, and for hosting me today, Michelle. Um, so my name is Kiko Mio. Uh, I'm the CEO and founder of Angazai Limu. I'm based of Nairobi, Kenya. Um, and just a brief about what Angazai Limu does, it's an education technology company focusing on ensuring that every child has access to quality and relevant education through the use of adaptive e-learning platforms powered by artificial intelligence. Kiko, welcome to the WTF podcast. So I know that you have an edutech company. Tell me more about what the problem is that Angaza Elimu is solving and why are you the person to solve it? Yeah, good question. So the focus of Angaza Elimu is typically to look in terms of transforming education in Kenya and beyond. So I'll give you a snippet of what the current Kenyan education system looks like. So things are bad. Um, literacy and numeracy rate are below par where you find that kids in grade three are not attaining the basic foundational skills from, from grade two. Uh, we do have huge classrooms. The PTR, it's about 56 to 1. So typically PTR is people to teacher ratio. Again, as the recommended of 40 is to 1. And the curriculum has not been reformed since the 32 years ago. So that what does it typically mean? With the evolving world and the changing of the market, then the curriculum is preparing people for a non-existing market. So there is a dire problem that needs a lot of innovation to transform and change all these traditional ways of teaching and learning. And, and that's why we came in at Zangaza Elimu to try and solve these challenges. The purpose why we believe that, and personally why I'm really passionate about this is I'm born and bred 
in Kenya. I've gone through the whole public education system. So I do clearly understand what are the key challenges that every student in class is going through, because it's the same similar situation I've gone through. And that's why I feel that something needs to be done and I had to step in. So the idea of transforming education is something that has always been a burning thing in my mind to try and see if I can transform the situation. Is there a particular experience that you had in your schooling that created this burning desire to transform the education and the curriculum system in, in, in Kenya? Yeah, so just a brief about me. So when I went into primary school, just in Calicare 12, um, we had what we called free primary education being introduced by the government. Um, and what this resulted in is um, more parents bring their kids because now education is free. Uh, but then the unfortunate thing is that the government did put in as much resources as possible. So they didn't buy enough textbook. They didn't employ extra teachers to cater for the extra students who are coming in. Um, so it was typically a great challenge being in a huge classroom where you're all struggling for the attention of one teacher and lacking the resources to try and understand what's going on and to match your learning gaps. Uh, but that without that, then I put in a lot of hard work and transitioned from a local primary school in the village to a national school in the city, that's, that's Nairobi. Things are kind of different here because the national schools are the top cream schools in the country. They are well-funded, they have enough teachers, they have enough resources. Um, and so kind of looking at comparing those different perspectives and I looked into terms of how my life was being transformed and getting more better quality education in a national school. But that doesn't happen for everyone because we typically have very few national schools in the country. So you can imagine over uh, 1 million students graduating from primary schools every year fighting for chances in about um, 12 national schools. So they can't fit in. So they end up getting into other low poor quality secondary schools, which is the same scenario as the primary schools. Um, and so I, of course, got good, good grades and went to pursue a career in um, telecommunication engineering and got a passion for technology. And that's how I would see how technology is transforming other sectors like transport, healthcare. I was like, why should we not do the same for the education space? Because um, we would have, if we place these tools just to transform and empower teachers, they could save the situation in those primary schools. I would imagine that with the onset of COVID last year, that you saw a spike in terms of the need for what Angaza Elimu does. How have you managed that spike in, in demand? Yeah, that's, that's absolutely true. So we actually saw a huge spike in the number of users in our platform. I think we moved from about um, less than 30 schools to over 800 schools in less than six months. That was last year alone. Um, and so what that called for the team is how best do we serve these huge numbers of users who are really in the need of getting the services that we do. So typically for us was to remain and go ahead of time and look into ensuring that these schools are getting value from, from our services. I think the most absolute thing was to do is um, get to invest into the teachers so they could carry on um, the quality of service that we do. Because again, being a small team and serving over this huge number in such a short time, we needed an extra external support. And the only way we could do that is get teachers up to speed so that they could carry on the good work. So walk us through how your services actually work. Yeah, so we do have two, two products um, in the market. Um, so the first product is an adaptive and interactive e-learning platform. 
And what this typically looks is into ensuring that every student is receiving a personalized learning experience. So curating a specific learning path for every student, because we believe that students have um, different learning abilities and if, which could take care of their journey specifically, then we meet in their needs. Um, and this accessed via the web and an offline interactive mobile app. And they were able to access the curriculum notes and resources and assessments of what they are learning in their classroom. The platform typically goes further to amplify the engagement between students and teachers. Um, and so this is where they could have virtual classroom, we could have teachers being able to um, engage their students and understand, customize their instruction in and out, out of the classroom. The second product looks into terms of um, ensuring that we're building a foundation for students to build skills that are needed for the market. Because until once they graduate from school, they are looking into getting into jobs or into their careers. Um, and so these pegged on what we call um, Innovators um, STEM education, so specifically science, technology, engineering, art, math, and entrepreneurship. So we do train them to get to know what is it that the current market is looking for and how could they start building these um, careers as, as, as early as possible. Um, and so, it has, it has kind of shifted a little bit from off-site training to a more of a hybrid model here where we have in both instructor-led and also self-based learning through um, a web-based app platform. So I would imagine that oftentimes when opportunity comes knocking in the way that it did last year with COVID, it was an opportunity to grow the demand for your business, but also with increased demand and growth comes costs because your costs get elevated to be able to meet that demand and continue to provide those services and those products and um, to meet the demand. So how did you manage that? And first of all, so have you received funding? Like where's your source of funding come from to to start up this business and what kind of funding are you looking for to be able to meet current demands and to grow? Yeah, so <clears throat> being a company, we're always looking in terms of how we could raise capital. So far, we've typically raised grant funding um, from different, from foundations, from institutions, and also from um, individuals. Um, that's the type of funding we've raised to, to this point. And that has helped us to typically build a product from an MVP, validate into the market uh, and have actual paying customers. And so from growing our customers who are actually paying for the product, then we will be also being able to generate revenue to keep the company moving. Uh, but you're right, when you say with an increase in demand, that means the costs are going high. So that still means that we still have a huge deficit and that's the reason up to the point we've not had a break even point um, of the business. And so at the moment, it's how now could we um, either keep on looking for more capital to be injected into the market um, to keep servicing the current customers that we have. Um, but then also, again, it's also to look into terms of with the limited capital that we have, how could we take much of um, automation and ensure that we're keeping some of our repetitive or OPEX down as much as possible. Uh, and so I think much of it is huge investment in terms of building products that have self-service and really don't require a lot of human capital um, to be driven by that. So that's how we've kind of like stricken our balance. But I would say we still have a huge deficit um, of capital to ensure that all operations are, are running into the optimal 
level that we want them to be. So you mentioned grant funds. How much in grant funds have you raised so far? And what's your deficit in terms of what you really need to be able to meet the current demand? Yeah, sure. So, so far we've raised uh, $129,000 of grant funding. Um, and we do have a huge deficit of about $700,000 um, to be able to finance us, especially in terms of uh, further market development and support of the users that, that we have and increase in product product innovation. So that's that's a current stand that we are in at this point. So you're in Kenya um, and Kenya is one of the top countries in Africa that attracts VC investment. Last year, Kenya attracted 305 million in VC funding behind Nigeria. What are the most attractive industries for VCs in Kenya? And where does Edutech fall in that? Yeah, it's true. Kenya made a break even um, ground of raising a lot of capital last, last year. Um, I think some of the two top industries that raise a huge chunk of this amount is on the fintech companies, uh, followed by um, e-commerce. And thirdly, I think we saw a huge of health tech um, companies doing that. But unfortunately, um, only about 4.3% of the total amount raised went to EdTech, which is typically pretty little amount of money looking into the um, what the sector sector is demanding right now. So pretty means that pretty little of money is going into um, education, uh, to be specific for EdTech, because even the 4.3% that's going into education, you'd find that about more than 80% of this is not going typically to EdTech. It's going into more of financing infrastructure into the schools or even institutions who are either giving, giving loans to schools to set up infrastructure. So kind of more FinTech inside education sector, um, leaving very little for supplementary um, actions like EdTech. Oh, I can't help myself. I have to ask, I was reading a recent article um, published on June 25th that suggests that white privilege is prevalent in the Kenyan tech ecosystem where uh, a white founder in Nairobi raised $1 million for a food startup. Um, <laughs> and I know that the Kenyans sort of had a field day with the story. Um, what's your thoughts about that? Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's all written in the books. Uh, I think it's pretty clear that Experts are raising more money um, than all local founders. Yeah, the story of um, of the startup in the food, even without them setting up actual operations, that, that was a miss. And them saying that we're not actually able to find local foods. And it with the natives here <laughs> was just a super crazy story. Um, and, and so um, over the years, we've seen a huge, pretty little amount of money going to the local founders. So that raises the question, um, I really, either local founders doing different business from what the experts are doing and, and why is it that more money is going to the experts than, than the local founders. But then again, we still to do believe that this money is not coming from the local investors. I think the issue that comes up is still the trust um, and the experts being funded by their own people. Uh, and then again, pretty very little of the money um, coming locally. So a huge amount of money being invested is not from local investors in Kenya. So just a few stats. 
on that situation. So white tech startups are about 50,000% more likely to get funded in Kenya than in the U.S. 65% of founders who got funded in Kenya were from the U.S. And 65% of expat tech founders have lived in Kenya for less than a year. So you did mention that those founders are getting funded from foreign investors who are investing in businesses in Kenya. So my question to you is, what are local investors investing in, local Kenyan investors, angel investors, and other types of investors who are um, operating locally in Kenya? Where are they targeting their funding? Yeah, great question. So I don't think the local investors in Kenya are still investing in more traditional businesses. Um, so this would look into terms of real estate, uh, pretty a lot of traditional local transport, and, and a lot of which are looking to terms of them investing in tangible areas of business rather than the service industries. So we've seen a huge discussion about them investing in service industries like healthcare and, and, and tourism, but that still means they invest in the old models um, rather than investing in the new models of business which have been supported by um, technology. What's the future for Angaza Limo? What's the plan for raising capital and expanding? Have you had conversations with VCs or other types of funders? Like what's your investment readiness plan? What are the things that you're working on right now to be able to onboard or to attract investment? Yeah, great question. So, so for us, our huge focus has always been fast looking into validating what we're doing. And this means that we have initial paying customers who are able to show that our product works and people are looking forward to getting value from our product. Um, and then that sets us to the point where now we're able to sit in tables with different people and look for money for, for expansion um, rather than where we've seen other, other founders looking into terms of looking for investors to um, drive an idea that has not been tested into the market. So that has always been our approach in terms of validation. Um, and, and so, as I mentioned, now that we've done that validation, we know that our product is working, we have um, a huge number of initial paying customers. For expansion is when we do believe that we do need an injection to ensure that uh, for that massive servicing of the big market that we, we are looking for capital. Um, and, and so we've, we've put all our measures to ensure that we invest that. I think that's always the first step. And the second thing is to ensure that um, it's to draw a plan or a roadmap of what like the fundraising plan um, to look like. So at this stage, um, what we're currently looking at doing is a lot of population of um, portfolio of these investors of people that we think would be a good fit for us. Because um, we do believe, again, also in the education a huge, as I said, 4.3 only went to education. So meaning that a huge chunk of investors are not looking into the education space. And so that to save us the time and move the conversation quickly, we need to have um, a good targeted number of people who are actually doing investments in ed tech and not just education. Um, and, and once we have that, then we'll move into um, having the initial conversations, look into because And we've, we've, we've known the number, the amount of cash that we need to inject and amount of capital that we need to raise. So right now it's just to um, have the conversations and see how that goes to ensure that we can be able to sign the actual checks. Do you think that with COVID and the pivot to online education, do you think that sort of 
help to better communicate the value proposition of edutech and edutech in a place like Kenya? I, I think it's just an, an awakening call um, for people who've really been um, neglecting edtech. Um, for people who have always known that education needs to remain traditional. Um, and this is not just about for the investors, but for typically different stakeholders in the space who, who, who have taken a long time to wake up and realize that there's a better way of um, teaching and um, in, implementing solutions that could drive solutions or better teaching and learning outcomes. Um, so this was a huge opportunity to get people to understand that it's the time that we need also to understand that when there's a disruption and schools are able to close, learning and teaching can still continue because always people have known that education happens in the constraints of the four walls of, of a building. But now they know that oops, with such a pandemic where people are not able to meet, we still need kids to continue um, learning. So we, for us, we see this as an opportunity and uh, a thing that should have been come a bit earlier, uh, but it's always a good time when it strikes and, and people are able to work up and come to action and put in implementation of better stuff. How are you measuring results? Yeah, so um, we do a number of ways before I speak So we mourn impact uh, or an impact-focused company and, and our not um, um, result is to ensure that students are improving on their performance. Um, so when we look into terms of, and I explained about the learning, the learning gaps, if, if we are able to fill in and ensure that these gaps are minimized and students are nearing what we call standardized mastery levels, um, then that's always the first thing that we're looking into. Um, and then secondly, what we look into is in terms of on the teacher sides, what are the teaching outcomes? Again, they're also connected to the learning outcome. But then again, is are really teachers getting to spend more time interacting with the students, spend more time actually teaching rather than doing all these administrative um, burden and tasks like um, routine assessments, progress, which we feel that could be taken off their shoulders. And so we look at in terms of how much time we, we save in them uh, and that they could spend time teaching. And lastly, the other key metrics that we do track for the results is, um, are we really helping parents not to struggle to finding a good quality education for their students? So no matter how we say that education is free, parents are still parting with um, a huge chunk of, of money from their pockets by buying educational resources, which remain also to be expensive. So if we able to get parents say, come to one-stop shop of an e-learning platform, and that necessitates you not to buy any other educational resources, then that removes the financial burden or barrier to, to a good quality education. Those are the three major um, metrics that we measure to, to look into measuring for results. So, to paint a more clear picture, how do your your services or your products that you offer, how do they integrate with, with the school system? So I know there's a component where students can come and work online, but are you selling uh, a, a program to the schools that the schools use? And also, is there a standalone product that is not school-based? Yeah, so primarily we do work with schools. Um, actually, recently it's when we worked, started working directly with, with parents, but that's still a very small portion of, of our work. So when we, we say that we're working with schools, is that we want to remain to be 
an integral part of um, the school process. And what I mean by this is when, when students are coming to school, um, what typically the model looks is what we've applied, we call the flipped classroom models, uh, which have been uh, a great success in other regions. And so kids are able to learn a specific concept before they come into the classroom. And when they come into the classroom, we're not doing the actual, um, the usual instruction. So kids are more of interacting with teachers to understand and say, hey, I was struggling at this point. And before even they come into the classroom, we've already provided the teachers with the insights on what are the areas, the friction points that the students are finding. And, and it's a more of very interactive or I, for a better word, if I could use like um, synchronous learning uh, between the students and the interaction with the teachers. And a lot of also peer-to-peer -peer interaction with the students because the teacher can be able to group these students into specific groups um, for them to keep working on, on further um, um, challenges that the teacher thinks that would help be able to elevate them from one point to the other. Um, and, and, and typically that's what the normal process um, of learning looks like, but we're trying to put this in a more, not really a lot of structured, but uh, moving it out from the very physical and offsite um, and take it into the platform. And with that, then we could use that into the actual learning and see how the progress can, can be looked at. And the teachers now can have a further deeper interaction um, with the students. So everything that happens in, in, in learning would mean like accessing lesson notes, would mean being assessing students, would it mean about collaboration, giving feedback, um, checking on the analytics, communicating with their parents. That's a normal way of what learning is. So we're taking that up and seeing how putting that on a digital platform to assist all the stakeholders, starting from the teacher, student, and the parent. When you present Angaza Limo to investors, how, how do you present what you're doing and the change this is expected to create in the education system, not just in Kenya, but potentially beyond the Kenyan borders? Yeah, sure. So when we always speak, and not just to investors, but different stakeholders, what we're telling people is this narrative that um, we want to create a last milestone for education. And when we mean by this, for example, in, in the bill of qualities where we're telling them, we want to change this and ensure that we see constant improvement in the learning and teaching outcomes because we have, these outcomes have always, I think they've always been decreasing year by year. Um, when you look at the results that have been released 10 years ago, there were more better results compared to what is being released there. So that means the trend is going downward. So we want to drive change that and give a positive trend on increase um, of, of the learning outcomes and, and typically create a success story for these students because um, that's that's the purpose of education. That's why a parent want the kids to access their education. They want them to have a successful story in their life. And what that means is this student could be turned into getting a good job, getting into entrepreneurship and having a good livelihood. And that's why actually the reason why we introduce a skills development program um, to ensure that we creating a good foundation for these students to understand I'm performing well in math, but that's not enough. Um, at the end of this, I want to see how I could use those math skills and implement them into what um, the current market is looking into. So if, if, if I want to become an engineer, then definitely means that I, I need to be super good in math. And if, um, for engineering, like in software engineering, then how do you start actually using those math skills to be able to, to build programs or to build products that, that are required in the market? So that narrative of showing success in the education space is what we're telling and 
different people into the space. Well, Kiko, thank you much, so much for talking to me today and, and sharing what you're trying to do with Angaze Limo. And I do hope that you're able to go on and have much success and to provide the level of service that your clients need and hopefully that you can find the funding to serve even more clients and to make sure that education becomes not um, accessible and affordable to all the people who want it. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks to our listeners for tuning in to another episode of the WTF podcast. We would love to hear your feedback on the show. So make sure that you email us at wheresthefunding at gmail.com. Also, if you would like to be a guest or sponsor the podcast, please reach out. You can find us on Anchor, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, all the usual suspects for places where people stream podcasts. Help us grow. To help us grow, please subscribe, stream or download, leave a rating, a review, share episodes with your friends, all that good stuff. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook and follow me, your host, Michelle McKenzie on LinkedIn. Join us for the next episode. Thank you, Kiko. You're most welcome. Thank you, Michelle.